sung some beautiful and powerful songs this morning. Oftentimes, singing something is, is even better than just saying it, and so I'm grateful for that song we just sang, and that is my prayer this morning. If you brought your Bibles, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. This passage is a song. It's a song that is beautiful and powerful. Ultimately, this song should be our song as individuals. And it should be our song as Alliance Bible Fellowship. This song, it speaks to two main areas of our life. Those two areas are our worship and our witness. Our worship and our witness. As you're turning there, let me just read another passage of Scripture to you. Psalm 36, verses 5 through 8, says this. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the rivers of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Is that your picture and understanding of God? Do you see God as one whose steadfast love extends to the heavens? Is he a place where you can take refuge? Is his house a place of abundance for you? If you are consistently meeting with God prayerfully through his word, you, you likely see God in this way and, and experience God in this way because this is the way God is. He is a steadfast, loving God, spreading an abundance for his people. But if you do not spend time with God prayerfully through his word, you may struggle to see him in those ways. Knowing that God is like this in your head and experiencing God in this way are different. If you don't consistently spend time with the Lord in prayer and and, and communing with Him through His Word, your worship and your witness will be dehydrated. It will lack the trust and the zeal and the boldness that our worship and our witness are supposed to have. Now, Isaiah was a man who met with God again and again and again. And God used him in a mighty way. The the ultimate message of this book that he wrote is this. God righteously judges those who refuse to repent, but God mercifully saves sinners for his own glory through the suffering of his servant son, Jesus. This message in the book becomes clear very quickly. We consistently see both of these themes in the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah declares that the nation of Israel has embraced sin. And he uses some fairly graphic language to condemn this. His message to the nation is that a holy God will judge and discipline them for their rebellion. And yet even in those first five chapters, glimmers of hope still shine. 
Isaiah says that even though punishment is coming, mercy and forgiveness will follow. Though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Chapter 1, verse 18. But as Isaiah began this this preaching ministry to a sinful nation, he quickly learned that he too was a sinner in need of salvation. He was not innocent. He was a man of unclean lips. And every preacher has to learn that truth, that they need Jesus just as much as those they are preaching to. And I've had to learn that. In chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord And and in that vision, he realizes that he is a man in deep need. He is so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that he feels as though he is about to die. But God is gracious and removes the guilt from Isaiah. Isaiah's condemnation of sin and and the promise of salvation continues in chapters 7 through 11. Now, the context of of chapters 7 through 11 is actually the reign of King Ahaz. He was king of Judah. And that might not ring a bell. So let me just fill you in for a second. We learn about his life and rule in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. The summary of those chapters is that Ahaz was a wicked ruler. The scripture says that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did many things that were wrong in One of those things that he did was he he made and worshipped idols. He even sacrificed his son to one of those idols. Ahaz was afraid of of other nations conquering. There's a lot of war going on around him. So he spared himself for a season. He did that by basically sleeping with the enemy to get some protection. He kind of partners up with Assyria. And in doing so, he he delays their moving in on Judah. It was a terrible time for God's people. And 2 Chronicles 28-22 says that in his distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless to the Lord. It's quite the contrast to the life of Joseph, isn't it? In Joseph's distress, he, he remained faithful, or maybe even grew in faithfulness. In Ahaz's distress, he became yet more faithless. Which response have you had? In times of temptation or trial or distress. Isaiah's message to Ahaz and the nation was, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in horses, trust in the name of the Lord. Repent of the sin that is in you. Avoid the sin that is around you. Sing to a God who saves. But Ahaz and much of the nation did not respond. As dark as chapters 7 through 11 are in the book of Isaiah, uh, several of those famous Christmas passages occur in this section. In chapter 7, Isaiah proclaims that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In chapter 9, he says that a child will be born whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In chapter 11, he says that a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. These passages contain wonderful truths that are the source of our hope as Christians today. Just as they were for the faithful remnant in Isaiah's day. Isaiah was preaching about Christ in those passages. But all of these hopeful Christmas passages come in the context of wicked, evil, 
sinful humanity in desperate need of salvation. That brings us to our our passage today, Isaiah 12. Let me read it for us. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done graciously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 12 is the climax of this first section. It's it's basically a song that is celebrating the salvation of God. It's only six verses, but it has great truth uh, and there's great joy, intense joy in this song. So we're going to make our way through it. Asking some questions as we go. Our very first question, my very first question is this. What is the source of this joyous song? Where does a song like this come from? The reason I told you all that context stuff is because it's what makes this song so staggering. The nation is lost. They are drowning in all kinds of sin. And their leader isn't helping the situation at all. Ahaz is building idols and then laying his own children on the altar. When you read through the first 11 chapters, you see that Judah had become arrogant. And it was full of empty religion. There was this pride among the people that was astonishing. They really believed that they were the captain of their ship. God had been shoved to a corner and was given an occasional nod in a speech or or a ceremony. Materialism was their master. They would do whatever it took to keep the gold and the silver. What they really wanted was more and more of it. The young despised the old, and different groups of people were always trying to oppress each other. That's what you see in the first 11 chapters. And in the middle of all this chaos and all this sin comes a song. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Where does that come from? I think the only answer can be God. This song actually has two parts. The the first part occurs in verses 1 and 2. The second part of the song occurs in verses 4 through 6. Verse 3 serves as a connection between those two parts. It's going to take me just a moment to kind of put this puzzle together, but, but hang with me. Let, me. let me start by taking just a moment to look at this connecting verse, verse 3. Verse 3 says, with you, and that you is a plural, all right? With, with you, all of you, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, Why did Isaiah say wells, or some versions have springs? I mean, shouldn't it be well, draw water from the well of salvation? Doesn't salvation only come from one source? What's what's going on here? Salvation does come from only one source, and Isaiah 
knows that. Isaiah knows and believes that salvation comes from God alone. He says in verse 2, God is my salvation. But Isaiah also knows that salvation is not just a a one-time moment with God and, and then you go on your merry way. Isaiah's life and ministry was not an easy road. Like many of the prophets, he was preaching to a stubborn people and to to wicked kings. He lived among great sin. War was all around him. He could could smell it and see it. It was a difficult time. And often he would preach just like the prophets and nobody would respond. He'd preach this message of repentance and they'd just respond, I hate you. That's not the kind of response you want when just as I am starts playing. All right? He lived in a very difficult time. Tradition says his life ended when he was sawn in two by Manasseh. That's the way to go, isn't it? If God calls you to that kind of life, you are going to need to experience God more than one time. If he's going to send you through a desert, you're going to need more than one well to get to the other side. The New Testament speaks of salvation as something we we experience in the past. It's an event that happens But it's also something we're experiencing now, and it's something that's going to take place in the future. Let me me show you this. Look at a couple of these verses here. Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved. All right, you've been saved. There's a moment in the past where you were saved. But 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. So we were saved in the past in this, this moment where God met us that first time, but, but we're still in the process of being saved. And then you got Romans 13, 11. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I thought we already had it. Why, how's it nearer? Because it's, it's full experience. The full culmination of it comes when we are with Christ in heaven. So salvation, we've been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. It's nearer to us now than it used to be. Verse 2 says, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. Verse 3 speaks of the wells of salvation. So we could say this. We could put the two together. We could say, with joy, you, that's all of us, with joy, we will draw water from the wells of God. One source, that's God, but there are multiple places, multiple times to experience him. So the wells of salvation are, they're they're meeting times with God or experiences with God's goodness, where he is our strength, where he satisfies our thirst. Our worship flows out of drinking from those wells of God. And our witness finds joy and boldness when we've just met with God and experienced him or when we Continually meet with him again and again and again. Our witness comes out of that continual meeting with God. I go back to verses 1 and 2, which is the first part of the song. Here, Isaiah is speaking in the singular. He is saying, he is speaking as one person who is trusting in God alone. The day he is referring to is that day that's introduced to us in chapter 11, the day where the Messiah would save all those who are his from their own sin and from the sinful world they live in. And this redemption was secured at the cross and will be fully felt and enjoyed 
when Christ returns and takes us home. That work of forgiveness that's extended to Isaiah in chapter 6, that's extended to any of us who believe, it was done at the cross. 1 John 4.10 says that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, propitiation, but it's an important word. It means that Christ serves as a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and actually changes his wrath to favor towards us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Isaiah's song comes from its redemptive source, and that is God. This song is not something he just conjures up. A, A song of thanks and praise comes from a personal experience with the holy and loving God of the universe. And you see what that experience is like in Isaiah 12, verses 1 and 2. Basically, Isaiah 12, 1 and 2 is saying this. Every Christian has a personal testimony, just like Isaiah did. The circumstances of our testimony may be different, but every single one of us should have these elements in our story. God was rightfully angry with me because I was a sinner. I was in rebellion against him. And when I was 10 years old, he met me in my sin and he comforted me with loving forgiveness through Jesus. God saved me. And because he saved me, I trust him with my life. And I'm seeking to trust him more and more with every part of my life. I'm not afraid of God because he's not against me now. He is for me. I'm not afraid of life because whatever life brings is going to be in his hand and I'm in his hand and it's all going to somehow work towards my good and his glory. His wrath towards me was changed to favor. And God is now my strength. God is now my song. Can you say verses 1 and 2? Look at them. Every Christian has a personal testimony. If you don't have one, you are not a Christian. The circumstances of our testimony may be different, but every single one of us should at some level understand these elements and have these elements in our story. I get very concerned about people when they can't express any aspect of their story. Even if you grew up in church and were saved as a child, you you should still have some sort of an understanding of who you were before you were saved. Even if you were saved at a young age, you should have an understanding of what God did when he saved you. His wrath towards you was changed to favor. God is not defeated by our sin. He's not defeated by our Failure. He wasn't defeated by Judah's sin. He was not defeated by Ahaz's sin. He was not defeated by Isaiah's sin. He's not defeated by my sin. He's not defeated by your sin. God is never defeated by sin. Rather, God defeats sin at the cross. And a Christian has a personal story. It's an ongoing story, but it's a personal story about how that historical event worked in their life. At 10 or 20 or 50 or 5, they can articulate at some level 
what that historical event did to them personally. I told you a few minutes ago that this song has two parts. We just looked at the first part. It's a personal song. The word you, in verse 1, it's singular. It means that each one of us will have this song. Each one of us will have this personal testimony of God's salvation. You have a story, and you have a story, and you have a story, and you have a story. All, every single one of us has a story. It's a personal one. The second part of the song is in verses 4 to 6, and verse 3 is connecting the two and kind of serving both of them. The second part of the song, the you, verses 4 to 6, is plural, all right? So verse 3 says, with joy, you, that's all of you, or youans, you might say, all right? All of you will draw water from the wells of salvation. All of us will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim his name is exalted. And it, it keeps on going. Verses 1 and 2. Teach us to give thanks to God for his personal, individual work in your life. So you give thanks for his work, and you give thanks for his work, and I give thanks for his work. Each one of us has a personal testimony, just like Isaiah did. Verse 3 teaches us to go to the wells of salvation often. It's an ongoing relationship. It's not a one-time, momentary experience. It's an ongoing relationship. Thing. Verses 4 through 6 teach us to give thanks to God for his corporate work in us and through us. He's doing something among all of us together as Alliance Bible Fellowship. There's a very real sense in which we can be wells of salvation for each other. God in me can be a well for you to drink from and know him better Experience him clearer, love him more. And God in you can be a well for me to drink from when I'm thirsty. It's one of the beauties of community is that we all come in a little bit thirsty. We've all got something to pour in to one another. And the result of a bunch of individual stories of God's grace is a corporate song and a corporate mission. One commentator said it like this. There cannot be a transformed community without saved individuals. Nor can there be a saved individual who's not incorporated into that community. Another way we could say that, we could personalize it and say it this way. Alliance Bible Fellowship cannot be a transformed community without saved individuals. And when another saved individual joins us, they must be incorporated into our community. In America, we like to assume that being with other people is optional in our Christianity. But the Bible never leaves any room for that craziness. This is why we put such emphasis on life groups this year. A Christianity that is just me and Jesus is never what God intended. In fact, it's got danger in it. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 speaks to this danger. Go home, look it up, discuss it with your life group. You're not in a life group? Join a life group and then you can discuss it. It's got some things to say about this. Now, 
Being in community is something you hear about a lot. And sometimes we don't have any idea what it means or, or it just it sounds complicated. Verses 3 through 6 actually tip us off about what being a community means. It might be more than this, but at the very least, being in community means this. First, together, we are united by our captivating master. Our allegiance is all of us. Our allegiance is to the same one. Two, we are united in a common mission to reach the lost. Three, we have a song that we can all sing together. And four, we have an observable joy that the world will notice. Now, you can take all of that, define biblical community this way. It's a transformed people who joyously sing while on a mission led by their captivating master. Let me flesh that out just a little bit. The first thing that unites us is our captivating master, Jesus. The thanks and the praise of each one of us land in the same place at the feet of God. He is who we thank. He is who we praise. Our songs are about him and to him. His deeds are what we proclaim. So community begins when each one of us have a personal experience with God And then all of us point to him as the source of that experience, and we place ourselves under him. Similarly, our individual stories of salvation might be different, but we can join together in songs that describe the realities of our experience. We may have met this faithful God at different places and different times and in different ways, But each one of us can join together and say, how great is your faithfulness. See, as we sang that song earlier, you have a personal story about how great his faithfulness is. And you have a personal story about how great his faithfulness is. And you have a personal story. And you have a personal story. But we're all singing the same song. It's a beautiful picture of what's going on in a moment of worship. Likewise, together each one of us has experienced the joy of salvation. If you get a whole bunch of people together in a room who've all been saved from their sin, the room should be a joyous place. It should be full of joyful people, even if challenges are present. Picture this. A whole bunch of people have just survived a plane crash. Some of them are bleeding Some of them have broken bones, but they're all alive. How would they feel in that moment? Every single one of them would be grateful. Every single one of them would be rejoicing. There might be some that need some help, and those who could give it would be giving it. But they would all be rejoicing. When people walk into this building, or they walk into a life group, or they encounter a small group of us in the community somewhere, they should walk away having encountered joy. There might be challenges in the midst of that joy, but they should see something unique. That might be why we're told to sing twice in this song. Why are we told to sing? I suppose there's a lot of reasons, but, but I think we can all agree that, that music 
is powerful. There's something about it. There's something about singing something that can often make it different than just saying it, right? And if music is powerful, how much more powerful is worship? A joyous people singing to their master is a powerful testimony. I think that is why there's a missionary call in this passage. Twice in this uh, passage, uh, the community is told that they have a mission. The mission is in verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 says, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And verse 5 says, Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. What unites us as Alliance Bible Fellowship? We're, we're all very different people with very different personalities and very different stories. We're from different places. We come to different services. What, what unites us? Most of the people that gather here on Sunday morning, we've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And the reality of that has positioned us in such a way that we're all captivated by the same master. The reality of being captivated by the same master is that we're all singing a joyous song of worship in our hearts. But what is all that for? Did God do all of that so, so we could just enjoy it together like some sort of teenage click? No, please no. He has done all of that Because he wants to give us a mission. And that mission is to take that message that has transformed us to more and more people. Every day we are sent to to different fields throughout the high country and, and even throughout the world. But our mission is the same. The field that we go to is different. But all of us go to different fields with the exact same mission. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. The Lord has done glorious things. Let this be known in all the earth. You are not just a student or an employee or an employer or a retired person or a stay-at-home mom. You are a missionary. You have a message. The message is that God wants to do a personal work in people's lives. The message is God's wrath towards us was satisfied and changed into loving favor at the cross of Christ. The message is that God is the best source of our strength. God is the best song that anyone can sing. And the message is, is that there's a group of people called Alliance. And there are a whole bunch of people from different places with different stories that all have this common theme, that God is their salvation. They gather on Sunday mornings and in people's homes and at other times and they sing songs and encourage one another and help one another and go to the wells of salvation and are the wells of salvation to each other so that their thirst can be quenched, so that their worship can be fueled, so that their witness can keep going. God has given each one of us the same mission, but he has 
very wisely placed us in different fields. And some among us, among us have been called to go to a field that's really far away. International missions exist because there are people in places where worship of God doesn't exist yet. And so we do missions to make sure that worship happens in those places. Last week we heard from Jeff Griffith, one of the international missionaries that we support with prayer and finances. If you came to the Thanksgiving banquet, you may have seen a little pamphlet sit on your table and that told you about other missionaries we support. Some of them are here in Boone, some of them are in China and other places. Pastor Doug called us to support missions financially. Rather than just saying, here's a number, let's reach that number, he said, how about 100% of us get involved? Kids, adults alike. A dollar, a thousand dollars, whatever. Just 100% participation. All of us praying, all of us giving. It's a very biblical call because we are all called to this mission. Different fields same mission. We're called to be a part of making God known among all the peoples of the earth. It means that we can't just, just settle for our field, though that may be our primary calling and where God uses us the most. But it does mean that in our heart of hearts, we want all the fields of the world to have this mission brought to them. We want them to hear. We want them to know. We want them to have the same worship that we have. Matt and Laura Young are are two who have heard that call to go very far away. They've said, here I am, send me. They're called to Papua New Guinea to be a, a part of Wycliffe's Bible translation. That effort will help the gospel message be known in all the earth, not just Boone, be known in all the earth because there are still peoples and there are still places where this message has never been heard. That means there are people that don't have the joy that we have. It's an exciting call. You're probably going to hear from them in a week or two. They hope to leave by January. Language and culture training begins mid-January. You can imagine that that would be pretty important for going to a A foreign place. The only thing that separates them from leaving and being there for that training that starts in January is money. They're about $26,000 short. That sounds like a ton of money. It is a ton of money. They've already sold their house and gotten rid of a bunch of stuff. They just need that final push. If 400 people gave $60... They can go in January. There's 400 people in this room. 60 bucks is not that much. If God lays it on your heart to do that, you'll not only be doing his mission in your field, you'll be saying, I value other fields and I want this message to be taken there as well. It's an amazing work that we're called to. It's an exciting thing. We're out of time, but let me close by asking this. Do you have a personal story of God's saving work. Can you say that historical event on the cross 
did something to me. It changed me. It gave me a relationship with God here. And in that moment, something began that's continuing to happen in my life. Do you have that story? If you do, don't forget to keep going to the wells of God to meet those daily thirst needs. If you don't have that personal story, that story can begin today by saying, I'm a sinner and you have every right to be angry towards me, God. But I want to trust in the work of Christ. I don't want you to be angry with me anymore. I want your wrath to be changed to favor. I want to walk with you. I want to be made new. That story could begin today. But if you have that story and you are drinking from the wells of salvation, there should be in you a passion and an energy to engage in the mission that we're all called to. The God of the universe saves sinners. That is good news. The God of the universe sustains his saints. That is good news. And the God of the universe sends us to others who need to hear. Fields that are close, fields that are far away. Let's go there together as Alliance Bible Fellowship, as individuals with a joyous song. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing work that you do saving us and giving us a song, a joyous song to sing. May we take that song to the ends of the earth and to the specific fields that you've called us to. May we do it with joy. May may we do it with your spirit working in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.